Uh, Kathy and I are going to be out of town. Russ and Beth White are coming uh, and are going to be speaking. I'd like you to introduce them since I think you know them. I said, well, I do know them, uh, but it's been a long time, and I see them infrequently, so would you contact Russ and have him give some background information? Uh, full disclosure, I said, I want to read it and learn it so I don't have to read it. But you see... <laughs> see what I'm doing here, uh, because I want to do them justice. Uh, Russ and Beth were uh, an integral part of our church when they were part of us back in the 1980s. Uh, they came here because Russ was attending medical school at University of Michigan. Uh, they were with us for about five years, from 1985 through 1989. Uh, I do remember Russ being involved in the worship team here, and I remember Beth being involved, I think it was with children's ministry and other uh, we had a pretty active women's ministry at that time and some other things that were going on. Uh, when they left us, uh, Russ went on to continue training as a doctor. He did graduate from medical school, by the way. He didn't just take off for Africa. Uh, he graduated, uh, went on to Harvard and Brown Universities and completed training in surgery and public health, uh, cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, he now serves as chief of surgery and the director of cardiothoracic surgical training isn't cardiothoracic where they bring your heart out through your throat? Isn't, have I got the two words connected? You'll have to explain that one. Uh, but anyhow, uh, Beth works closely uh, as well with Russ uh, in visiting uh, with staff and teaching the missionary children uh, who are there with them at Tenwek Hospital in Kenya. Uh, their primary uh, ministry is discipleship and teaching African doctors both medically and spiritually. And if you're around Russ and Beth at all, and I'm sure you'll catch this morning uh, as they present to us that they have a heart for God. Um, they are in the middle of a project. I was talking with Russ here at the, uh, before the service. Uh, they're building a major uh, new uh, cardiothoracic surgery unit in the hospital there in Kenya. Uh, and Russ has been in frequent contact with them, even though he's supposed to be vacationing for a year in the U.S., so uh, it's not happening quite that way. They do have uh, five children. Karen and I were talking this morning, couldn't remember if it was four or five. Five, it's four boys and a girl, uh, and two grandchildren, and I'm sure he'll be proud enough to tell you a little bit about them as well. But would you help me welcome Russ and Beth White? Good morning. My name is Russ White, and my wife Beth is down here, and she tends to like to have me do the speaking. Um, so we'll stick with that for today. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a while since we were here full time. That was back in the, the late 1980s, and we, we visited this church. You know, we moved here as, to a new place, visited this church the first Sunday and we stayed with it for the rest of the whole time we're here. We never visited another church. Um, we found a family and a home and felt like this was where God was calling us uh, during that time in our lives. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be with you and share with you uh, this morning about what God has been doing uh, in our lives and to share with you a message from the scripture as well. Um, it's always a little hard as a missionary speaker because you want to give a bit of an update on what's happening at the mission field, but you also want it to be not just a, a report card, but a, 
a message. So I'll try to share with you a little bit about what's happening there. Our family, as Scott mentioned, um, and I'm, I'm doing what they told me, I'm holding and having faith. That's, that's what they said, press the button and have faith. Which I guess means if it doesn't turn, then I don't have enough faith. <clears throat> but our family is all doing very well. Our four older kids, the boys, all four boys, are married and uh, graduated from college and uh, each doing different things. Our oldest uh, and his wife have uh, two sons, twin boys, so we have twin grandsons. And uh, that's a real treat for us. Um, we don't get to see them very often, as you might imagine, because we're in Africa and they're here in the United States. But um, the family is really all doing well. Our youngest daughter, we just put into college. She just started her first year of college at Calvin University over in Grand Rapids. So we are finally truly empty nesters now at this point. Um, the work at Tenwick is going really very well also. Uh, we've been there 25 years now. And as Scott mentioned, our primary work is discipleship. So I spend the majority, of, I spend all of my time with young doctors in training and we teach them medically and surgically and we fellowship with them and mentor them. Um, this is a picture taken back in 2008. If I had to kind of summarize our ministry uh, at Tenwick, I would say I would break it into three periods of time. The first period of time was um, 1997 through about 2007. And during that time, uh, we had no residency training programs. So we had interns that were being trained, but none being trained at higher levels from us, from, from my point of view, surgically. Uh, that was our goal, but it took us a while to get to that point that we could do that. So during that period of time, <clears throat> I did um, general surgery, and by that I mean Pretty much any operation you can think of, I did during that time because there were, particularly in the early years, there were no specialty surgeons at all. Um, and so whatever needed cutting, then I would end up doing, uh, be it orthopedics or plastic surgery or gynecology uh, or surgical oncology, any of these areas, uh, urology, all of them fell to me. Um, and it was exciting, it was a bit anxiety provoking, and I found myself doing a lot of reading during those days. This was before the internet uh, at that time. Uh, so <clears throat> you couldn't just, you couldn't uh, YouTube how to do a particular operation <laughs> like you can now. I think the young doctors all YouTube everything nowadays. But um, you had to go to the library and actually look in books and read it in books and then uh, go to the operating room and do it. So that was the first 10 years. The second 10 years, we started uh, in 2007 uh, a residency program in general surgery. And these were our first two residents, a uh, young man and a young woman <clears throat> being trained in general surgery. And for them it was a step of faith as well because we had approval to start the program but we didn't have formal recognition of the program. And we actually didn't get formal recognition until the year before they graduated. But they were recognized as, as trained surgeons when they finished. 
So that picture was taken in 2007. This picture was taken in 2022. This is the exact same group. Our residents at graduation. So all of those doctors in white coats are surgical trainees. Uh, the Lord is really blessed. We have about 45 doctors in training from the original two and uh, they're being trained in a wide variety of fields including general surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, cardiothoracic surgery, and obstetrics and gynecology. So it's really been wonderful to see this whole program grow and see what the Lord has been doing in that. Um, and as I say, a big part of what we do is spiritual discipleship as well. We feel that's vital to what we're doing uh, and we spend a great deal of our time in that. The, the, then the, the third period of time, which I would say is about 2017 to 2022, <clears throat> is when we had finally seen the need to start a cardiothoracic surgical program. I was actually personally against doing open heart surgery at Tenwick Hospital. You might say, that's crazy, you're a cardiothoracic surgeon. That's true, but I, I was against it because I didn't think, number one, we could handle the complexity, both technologically and from a human resource point, point of view, and I didn't think that um, the need was there. I didn't think we had all that many patients who needed heart surgery. In the United States, the majority of patients who need heart surgery have coronary artery disease uh, or hardening of the arteries. We don't have that nearly as much in Africa as we do here. But I came to find <clears throat> that there was a large group of patients, and these were mostly children, uh, who had what's called rheumatic heart disease. Rheumatic heart disease is something many people have, if, if you talk to the average cardiac young surgeon today, they've never seen it because it's, it's, not, uh, it's not something we deal with in the United States anymore. It begins with a simple strep infection a strep throat that goes untreated. And if you take out of that group of people who are untreated, about 3% of them will develop rheumatic heart disease. So we've done away with it in the United States simply by treating strep throat. So this is a preventable condition, but in Africa, the thought of providing simple antibiotics to everybody in need is a massive undertaking, absolutely massive undertaking. So instead, you end up with these people with rheumatic heart disease. What happens is the body recognizes the valves of the heart as foreign. And so you'll start to get attacking, self-attack of, of the body on the valves of the heart. And the valves become either leaky or tight. And the patient then suffers from that. So you'll find these kids typically, oh, 14, 15 years old, and... Um, Last year, they noticed they couldn't quite keep up with everybody else in physical activities. And this year, they found it difficult to walk to school anymore. And next year, they'll drop out of school. And the year after that, they'll die of their heart condition. So we find these kids, and I found more and more and more than I had ever imagined. And we felt that the Lord was calling us to start a heart program. So we did. And... Um, through a lot of effort, we're able to do that. At this point in time, Tenwick Hospital is the largest provider of open heart surgery for the country of Kenya. 
and that's the only place that it is offered outside of the capital city. So we have a team. This is our team. There's a couple of fellows there, meaning they've completed general surgery training and now are now training in cardiothoracic surgery, and some of our residents in training also. Um, that team has grown, and uh, as I say, we're providing the largest uh, uh, number of cases for the country. We've had finally two sets, two rounds of graduation. So in the bottom picture there is my, new, my partner, Dr. Araga. He's from Ethiopia, and Araga is a fabulous young surgeon. Um, he did his general surgery training with us, as well as his cardiothoracic. So he saw that for, well, essentially for the last 10 years, I've been on call every night and every weekend uh, for 10 years covering cardiothoracic. And he came in and joined me. <clears throat> he said, now I'm going to cover 10 years. I'll cover 10 years of call. I said, no, that's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> let's not do that. Let's split it up. Let's, let's make this equal and even. Um, so he joined me, and then just this past January, the top two uh, people there graduated. And so now we have four, four of us functioning in cardiothoracic surgery. And it has made life incredibly much better for me um, and for the patients, I'm sure. Um, in the program. Now, the biggest limiting factor to the cardiac work that we do is the space, the actual space. We have one operating room set aside for cardiothoracic surgery four days a week. Um, and we have 600 patients on a waiting list for open heart surgery. So you can imagine, and that list keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's been our, our biggest hurt, uh, obstacle in trying to expand the program. So about four years ago, we began a plan of a new uh, facility at Tenwick Hospital. And um, that, that plan finally came to light so that we had groundbreaking in uh, July of last year. And then you see here in uh, September, we were ready to start pouring foundations. And then if we move ahead, you'll see that the foundation started to come out of the ground in, uh, in, in November of last year. And in, in February of last year, it was really coming up and out of the ground. And finally, uh, this is what it looks like in July of this past year. So that's all the work done in one year's time there at the hospital. This is a huge, huge facility. For those of you who are in building, uh, this is a 350,000 square foot facility. Uh, I'm not in building, so that doesn't mean much to me. But when I walk through it, it means a lot. It's, it's really a big facility. It will be the largest cardiothoracic unit in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it'll be the only dedicated Christian cardiothoracic unit in the world that I'm aware of. Uh, so we are really looking forward to this. The Lord graciously provided the funding <coughs> for the building itself. <coughs> so we've, we've spent or will spend by the time this is done close to $40 million uh, to build this facility. The building is fully paid for, so we're continuing on through completion. We now have to equip the building 
you can imagine all the b equipment that has to go in that building. And that's what I'm focusing on this year here in the United States uh, while I'm here is fundraising for that. Um, so, and we actually had one third of that committed already. So we're finally down to the very small number of $12 million. $12 million is what is remaining. So since the stock market is doing so well, as Scott has mentioned, I'm sure there's somebody out there ready to write a check for $12 million. And please talk to me and I'll tell you how to make it out. Um, the Lord has been doing a lot of things. And that's a, a, a brief summary of what's happening at Tenwick and what's going on in our different programs. I'd like to move into sharing with you um, a message this morning. And I'd like us to consider the topic of born again. <clears throat> born again. Um, you know, I live in Africa, but I hear about what happens in the United States. And I read the news, and um, I'm sometimes actually shocked at what's happening in America. Um, some of my Kenyan colleagues will hear the same news reports, and they say, is this really happening in America? And I have to kind of cover my eyes and say, yes, it, it really is. It really is happening there. Uh, where uh, upside down, things are turned upside down, it seems. Um, things that uh, are uh, east is west and north is south and uh, it's just the country in a lot of ways has gone a lot of funny ways and one of those ways I've noticed is the the term born again has come to be a bad thing isn't it? in a lot of places in a lot of circles if you're a born again, that means something about your particular political bent or your, your moral perspective or uh, something else. Um, and you'll hear people say, you're not one of those born againers, are you? And you say, oh, of course not. No, no, I'm not, not one of those born againers. If someone asks me, are you born again? I would say, well, why don't you tell me what you mean by born again? before I answer that question. Or I could tell you what it means from the Bible to be born again. Because yes, I am born again. Um, and I'd like us to look this morning at this idea, at this concept of born again, and, and hopefully give us a little more material, as it were, to deal with these questions when they come about what exactly does it mean to be born again. So we'll be looking at John chapter 3, a very familiar passage, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus. John chapter 3 and beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. 
Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not you understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Jesus meets Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we know from biblical and extra-biblical sources, was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, so he was a well-respected higher up in the Pharisee order. And he comes to Jesus at night. The concept of coming at night is one clearly that he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be seen with one of those born-againers. So he comes at night when there's no light to be seen. And he asks Jesus, what, what is he asking Jesus? There's no clear question, but I think there is a question in what he says. Essentially, he's saying to Jesus, who are you? Who are you that does these, these amazing things? Clearly, you have to be from God. And that's really something that Nicodemus says this. You have to be from God, for no one can, can do these types of things apart from God. But who are you? And Jesus, in his way that he frequently does, doesn't specifically answer the question. And that's frequently how Jesus, he sees what's deeper behind the question. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus did not understand, and it seems that Jesus left him still wondering. So I would like us to look a little, under, a little deeper and try to understand better what it means to be born again. And to do that, I would like us to look at three different biblical practices that will shed some light, both individually and collectively, and give us a clearer focus on the meaning of being born again. These three different um, practices are what you see in front of you. The Day of Atonement, Baptism, and Communion. We're going to look at those three. The Day of Atonement, Baptism, and Communion. So, first of all, let's look at the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar was the most holy day of all days. It's the time and the place where once per year the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the high priest himself, and the sins of the people. Now, in the, in the temple or the tabernacle, depending on when you're talking historically, there was a holy place in which the priests could come to give 
regular sacrifices. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the deeper place behind the veil. And all of these things start to ring bells as we talk about them when, when the, we read that the veil was torn in two at the time of the crucifixion. It's that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And once per year, the high priest could enter into that holy of holies to offer sacrifice for the atonement of sins of both himself and the people. Now, atonement, the day of atonement, the word atonement literally means to blot out, to blot out. And it's different than forgiveness. It's not the same word as forgiveness. So when you blot something out, think of it. You can blot out something on a piece of paper and you cover it up with the, the paint or the ink or whatever you're using. You blot it out. That's what atonement means, to cover over the sins of the people. And in this case, it would mean for one more year, you cover the sins. And one more year, you cover the sins. And we'll get into this when we talk about Hebrews, where it talks about the priest coming year after year after year after year. Um, but that's what atonement means. The high priest would first present the blood of a bull for his own atonement, and then the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy relic, if you will, of all of Jewish history, uh, which was in there. And he would sprinkle blood on the cover of the Ark of Atonement. Before doing any of this, the high priest would bathe himself and dress himself in white wearing a white robe and a white turban. So why all this ritual with washing and blood and white garments? What, what did this all mean? The white robes indicated that the priest himself was a sinner. The priest needed to wash himself and then cover himself in white robes because he himself was a sinner before he could enter the Holy of Holies. And secondly, blood was required to show that the penalty for sin is death. The requirement for sin is death. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Back in Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant with Noah. And part of that covenant was that blood could never be swallowed or eat, eaten or drunk. Blood could never be taken in. So that nowadays if you go to a kosher deli, the meat is kosher. It's been killed in such a way, it's been slaughtered in such a way that there's no blood in it. This goes back to Genesis chapter 9, that no blood could be in it. And why? Genesis 9 tells us because the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The use of blood in this ceremony showed that life has to be spilled out due to sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read of the fulfillment of this ceremony. It tells us that for centuries, high priests had been sprinkling blood on the Day of Atonement. 
But when Jesus came, he became both the high priest and the sacrifice itself. So let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. And it says this, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing, so that the way into the true holy place was not yet known, even when the Holy of Holies was in place. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The new order being when Jesus himself comes. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect temple that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then very briefly, verses 24 through 26. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Day of Atonement. It's the day when the high priest offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. The day was fulfilled in Jesus himself, who entered the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, as the high priest and became the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Let's move on then to baptism. We're going to talk briefly about baptism. Baptism, as you know, is a public display of a private experience. We publicly share with others that we have experienced salvation or been born again. We do this because Scripture commands us to do it, number one. We do it because Jesus did it himself. And finally, because it allows us to enter into a Christian community that will encourage us and hold us accountable. John the Baptist first introduced baptism in the Scripture, calling people to repentance. Jesus himself came to John and was baptized. You'll remember that John was very hesitant to do this, stating that he was not even worthy to loose the sandals of Jesus. However, Jesus insisted and underwent baptism as a prefiguring of his coming death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 tells us a little bit about Baptism, and I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 4. 
Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we go down into the water in baptism, we ceremonially die. We die to our old self. The old life goes out and the new life comes in. When we are raised from the water, the new life of Christ flows into us and we are a new creation. That is what baptism is all about. And finally, we'll look at communion. And then we'll bring these all three together at the end to talk about how they help us understand this whole concept of being born again. Communion is the practice which Jesus initiated on the night before his crucifixion, which we cere- in which we ceremonially eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. Now bear in mind the instructions I mentioned earlier from Genesis chapter 9. This is revived and brought further into light in Leviticus chapter 17 when it was made a lasting covenant that no one who ate blood could could continue in the community. If you drank blood, you couldn't go to your rabbi and ask for forgiveness. That, That wasn't a possibility. If you drank blood, you were excommunicated from the community forever, permanently. This was something that was well ingrained within Jewish people throughout their growing up. And why was this the case? Because the life was in the blood. And you couldn't take someone else's life within you. And now we come to Jesus in the New Testament. You'll recall his words in the Gospel of John telling his disciples that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life within you. This was a radical, radical statement. And the scripture tells us that from that time on, many of his disciples left him and many started to plot to put him to death. This was a key change when Jesus brought this whole idea of drinking my blood and eating my flesh because of this historic forbiddance of drinking blood. This was a shocking statement to these people that they would drink any blood, much less human blood. The scripture tells us that his followers left him at that time. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying this. He was saying, due to sin, there is no life within you. You are dead. To be truly alive, you must take my life within you. You must drink my life to take that within you. In communion, Jesus was telling his followers to regularly remember this by taking the cup and the bread, to remember that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross so that his life might flow into us. Now, let's pull all these three together, the Day of Atonement, Communion, and Baptism, and see how they help us further understand what it means to be born again. Poor Nicodemus was left befuddled when Jesus told him that he must be born again. What could this mean? 
Nicodemus fully understood the Old Testament tradition of sacrifices in general, and specifically the Day of Atonement. He knew full well that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just as the blood of the goat and the bull on the Day of Atonement must be poured out, so the old life of tyranny of sin must flow out. The old man must die. In its place, the blood of Jesus must flow in, for the life is in the blood. Jesus would introduce communion to remind us all that the life of Jesus must flow into us. And as we die under the water of baptism, so we are raised with the new life of Jesus within us. This is what it means to be born again, to have the old life die, to have a new life enter. Now, you've heard me talk about Nicodemus and his experience of being born again. Let me tell you about Nicholas. Nicholas is a patient who came to Tenwick Hospital uh, oh, about four or five months ago. Nicholas was 29 years old, and he had had some vague chest complaints for a few months, but they got really severe, and he showed up at a clinic where he passed out. He lost consciousness. So they brought him to Tenwick Hospital. When he arrived, he was in shock. He was unconscious, uh, very low blood pressure, very rapid heart rate. We quickly did some studies and tests and took an x-ray and it showed that he had bled into his chest. We put a tube in there and drained out about a liter and a half of blood from his chest. And then we did a CT scan. And the CT scan showed what's on the next picture, which is not a CT scan, but it's an artist's rendering. Nicholas had what's called an aortic arch aneurysm. Now this is, if you see there, that's the heart, and coming out of the heart is the aorta, and there's a big swelling in that area where the blood supply goes to the brain. So he had an aneurysm of that area, and it had ruptured. Now if you, you know, you get various emergency calls. This is one of the worst emergency calls to get, an aortic aneurysm rupture, because the chance of survival is so low and the chance of complications is so high. Um, and no matter what happens, you're going to be busy in the operating room for 14 to 16 hours. So getting this call is one you never want to get. Um, but on a 29-year-old, you're going to try everything you can. So we took him to the operating room. And it takes a large group of people to work on something like this. This is really uh, uh, a, a, a big, big problem. You need to have about 18 units of blood ready to try to deal with this kind of a case. And um, you have to have many staff members involved who know what they're doing. We go on bypass, and that's what the machine is in the next picture. That's a heart-lung bypass machine where we take over the, the uh, job of the heart and lungs. But you can only do that up to a certain point because, as you saw, all those blood vessels take off from the aneurysm itself going to the head. And you have to stop those in order to repair them. So what we do is we cool the patient. We cool from a normal body temperature of 37 degrees down to about 18 degrees or about 65. We take the temperature down that low. The heart stops. We pump blood for the, 
for the heart during that time. But when we finally get ready to try to repair that aneurysm, we shut off everything. We tell the pump people, stop the pump. And during that period of time, there is no blood flow to any part of the body at all. You drain most of the blood out of the body into the machine, and you do your work as quickly as you can. But that's about 45 minutes of time that there's no, no blood flow. So during that time, there's no pulse, there's no blood pressure, there's no respiration, there's no brain waves detectable. There's no blood moving anywhere in the body. That patient is dead, essentially dead on the table. And then you do all the work while the patient is dead and then restart things up again and start flowing blood. And you hope and pray that the brain has not suffered severely during that time. So we did this for Nicholas and uh, it took a long, long time and a lot of blood and um, the next picture will show you Nicholas four weeks post-operatively. Um, now when I talked to Nicholas after the operation, as you can imagine, I didn't talk to him before the operation. He was unconscious. When I talked to him afterward, I described how we had done the operation. And he's a smart guy. He, he is an IT technician at a company. Um, he, uh, I, he said, so there was no pulse, no, no blood pressure, no, no blood flow, no. He said, so I was dead. <laughs> I said, yeah, you were dead. He said, but I've been born again. Nicholas was a Christian. Nicholas knew the Lord Jesus as his Savior. So he said, so now I've been born again, again. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's true. You're one of the few people in the world that can say that. What happened to Nicholas was a dramatic, life-saving, urgent situation. Something that uh, one deals with only rarely. What happens when we give our lives to Jesus is a dramatic, life-saving, urgent event. It's the same thing. It's being born again from death into life. Now, some of you might say, but, you know, I was born again when I was six years old, and I don't remember any big dramatic event. <laughs> I was kneeling at my bedside with my mother, praying with me. No, you don't remember a big dramatic event, but a big dramatic event happened. It did. During that time, your life went from death to life. And I hope and pray that if people ask you about being born again, you can share with them what it really means to be born again. I hope and pray that if there's anyone here who has not been born again, who has not experienced that change from life to death, that you will give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ that you will be born again like Nicholas was, like Jesus said we must be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your scripture which always encourages us and teaches us. I thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough that you gave your life to enter into the true holy of holies, that you came in as 
the great high priest, but you were also the sacrifice itself. And that once and for all, you satisfied the penalty for our sin. And we can now live knowing, Father, that the life of Jesus Christ reigns in our hearts. Yes, Lord, there are times we feel farther away from you, we feel distant, but we know that the life of Christ lives in our, in our hearts. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this group today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would find the, the time now to give their life unto you, that they would be truly born again. Father, go with us this day in all that we will do. May we meditate upon your word and may your spirits continue to speak to us throughout this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.